Last night we did something a little bit different and I wanted to explain to you what you're about to see so you don't wonder. We had three different men share a Christmas hymn or Christmas carol, give us a little background on it or some of the words to it and focus our attention on the meaning of our Christmas hymn or Christmas carol and then we would sing those. I didn't include the congregational singing but you will hear three men present three different Christmas hymns, Christmas carols and talk a little bit about them. And then at the end, there is a brief message about Advent. Enjoy. So the title of this hymn is Thou, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, didst leave thy throne. We often pass over that and that that's the Lord. We think of royalty, a king who has a throne. Well, Jesus is God, as we know him, yes. and he's this, as we know, and he has this, he is the second person of the Trinity. Yes. So he is deity. Now, uh, John 10, 10 tells us, I am come that they might have life and that they might have love, life, uh, it might have it more abundantly. It's John 10, 10. And this hymn says, Thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me. And it recently dawned on me, we know that the Lord came to earth for man, but it applies to us individually. He came to earth for me. And um, the scripture, at the, I love to see what scripture that they put above in our hymn books, they put above the title in Philippians 2, 7, and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Now, theologically, what it entails when someone... Well, no one could do this, but when God came to earth and put aside his deity and became fully man, already being fully God, no one can explain that, but that's what scripture teaches. Right. And he did that for us to down the cross for our sins. And what's interesting, I don't know how many of you get this days of praise, we get it via email because it's easier to find an email and you don't lose the little book. Um, John 17, 5, when the Lord Jesus Christ prayed uh, his high priestly intercessory prayer in John 17, he said, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So that verse says a lot, but it's teaching that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, was the second person of the Trinity and shared the glory as part of the Trinity before creation. Yeah. And in the days of praise, it said, this passage is taken from Christ's prayer to the Father shortly before his crucifixion. It's one of the clearest biblical statements of the preexistence of the God-man, Jesus. Here, Jesus declares that he existed before the world's creation which is equivalent to saying he's eternal. Yes. Now, we can't understand that because everything that we know has a beginning, but the Lord Jesus Christ did not have a beginning. And yet, that shows even more what he gave up to lay that aside and come to earth as a man. Right. Now, um, a great reformer said, this is read, reading from Days of Praise, this is a remarkable passage that teaches us teaches us that Christ is not a God who has been newly contrived or who has existed only for a time, for if his glory was eternal, he 
himself also has always been. Jesus claimed eternity and unity with Jehovah, saying, Before Abraham was, I am, John 8, 58. And in the sense, so, so, uh, in the sense of brevity here, I want to move on. Um, here, the Days of Praith author says, The eternal Christ says he left his throne. So the eternal Christ temporarily took upon himself the form of a certain, a servant, and was made in the likeness of man, and he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, Philippians 2, 7 and 8. So he was looking and praying towards a future glory, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down now, he left his throne, now he is back, and he is set down at the right hand of God, at the throne of God, Hebrews 12, 2. So uh, this song was written by Elizabeth, excuse me, Emily S. Emily E. S. Elliot. And you can see that in your book. The name on the left, under the page number, is who wrote, who wrote it. The person on the right is who wrote the music. So she was born at Brighton, England, uh, July 22nd, 1836. And throughout her life, she was associated with a good part of the Anglican Church, or the better part, let's say. The Anglican Church is the Church of England. Uh, she gave herself sacrificially in working with rescue missions, Sunday schools in the area, and she was the niece of Charlotte Elliott, who wrote Just As I Am, which was a huge uh, revival hymn, huge revival hymn. And for six years, uh, Emily edited a, a church magazine, a Christian magazine, uh, and 48 of her hymns were published in a book called Under the Pillow, and that was for people that were disabled and ill in hospitals, and uh, poetry in days past had a great like the Psalms, had a great healing effect as people read them and it caused them to think and it helped them to think on positive things. This particular text that she wrote uh, was really written privately for her school children, the school children of her father's church, uh, St. Mark's in Brighton, England. And it was written for the purpose of teaching, that's just biblical, teaching the children the truths of Christmas, Advent and Nativity. And the text for the hymn was based on the haunting phrase, but there was no room for them in the end. And it's interesting to note the contrast that she achieved in the first four verses. If you'll look down, if you have it open. Uh, if not, I'll read it to you. Stanza one starts with heaven's throne and crown, but no room in Bethlehem. The second verse heaven's royal degree, but earth's great humiliation. Mm -hmm. Stanza three, earth's creatures have their homes, but for him, he had no home in the desert. And number four, he came bringing redemption, but man gave him crucifixion in Calvary. And stanza five, here the contrast is reversed. Death is changed into victory, and heaven's arches that are in stanza two, they're going to ring again when he comes for the second coming. So 
to it compares the first coming with the second coming and the victory there. Yeah. And then the, the, the chorus, the refrain, uh, is, Oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus, there's room in my heart for thee. And then the last one says, uh, And my heart shall rejoice, Lord Jesus, when thou comest and callest for me. It's a reference to him coming again. Yes, there's room in my heart for you. So uh, that's uh, a little bit of background for that song, plus a little bit of theology thrown in there. Amen. That's a wonderful song. Thanks. Good choice, Scotty. That's a good song. I'd just like to talk a little about number 103, which is I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. This was written by American poet of fame Henry Longfellow. Uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, most people know him by his full name. And um, in order to understand the poem here that he wrote, because initially this was a poem, not not a hymn, just a normal poem, and a man named Calkin um, wrote the music to add to this poem because he liked it. And the context of this poem is that Longfellow did not have a very easy life. In fact, he had a very tragic life leading up to the writing of this poem. He was married twice, and the first time he was married, his wife died within a few years of their marriage. And the second time he was married, um, at first, the object of his interest, his uh, future wife, did not, did not like him at all. And he had to ask several times over the course of several years until she finally agreed. And it wasn't because she was just fed up with him asking. It's because she actually learned to love him more than she had before. And, <clears throat> however, shortly after they were married, she was um, sealing an envelope with wax. And in order to do that, she needed a candle to uh, melt the wax so that it would form over the envelope and seal. But while she was holding this candle, somehow her dress caught on fire. And it uh, was burning her badly, and her husband, Longfellow, he came running in and tried to put out the fire with his own body, squished squish the flames and, and doused the fire. But as he was doing so, he was, he was successful. Eventually, the fire was put out, but not, after, not before both he and his wife were badly burned. And his wife died the next day, uh, and he did not recover from the burns on his face. In fact, if you see uh, earlier pictures of him, he doesn't have a beard, but in later pictures he has a big white beard, and that is because he couldn't shave after because of the burns he sustained on his face. Um, anyways, that was 18 years before the writing of this poem. When he wrote this poem, the Civil War was in full swing, and the things were very looking very bad for America. Mm -hmm. uh, it was it was um, not a good time for Americans, and people did not have much hope. And so you can see he writes here, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. And that verse makes sense in the context of the Civil War. Yeah. He's talking about how Americans were being slaughtered every day by the thousands, literally. And it was uh, a horrible time for people. And he goes on in the third verse here and says, For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. However, uh, it is said while he was writing this verse, he heard some bells in the distance and it reminded him of, of God's promise 
uh, or God's promises, I should say, not any specific ones, just the promises in general. And so he went on to continue writing. Now, in the hymnal, the, the fifth verse in the hymnal is actually the third, or the, um, yes, the third verse in the original poem, but they put it at, at the bottom. So think of the fourth verse in the hymnal as actually being the last verse of, of the poem. He, he goes on to say, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, because he's listening to these bells from far away. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, and the right prevail, with peace on earth. Good will to men. And so, even though he had lost two of his wives, and he was hurt by the Civil War, uh, he still had faith in God that things would be well, and that God would bring peace to earth, as he did when he came in his human form, that he would come again and bring hope to people. And so let's sing that song, number 103. I heard the bells on Christmas. The worst time to bum my leg, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this one's kind of, I, I don't really know if this one was picked for me, to be honest. Um, this was a discussion Pastor and I were having um, about... I had stumbled onto uh, words that I didn't know existed for this song. Um, and so in that, um, I wanted to share that with you um, and a, a little bit of the history of who wrote it. Um, the author of this, the composer of the lyric of this, um, is a, a man by the name of William Chatterton Dix. And uh, it's thought that this uh, this word, these words were set to Greensleeves. Obviously, we know that that's... that's um, Many of us would recognize that Greensleeves is the theme, if you will, the, the material, musical theme uh, to this. It's thought the words were put to Greensleeves about 1865 um, and uh, by William Chatterton Dix. His father, uh, being a surgeon, he worked in insurance, um, some other things that he did. Uh, nobody really knew his, um, his writings, his poetry, his uh, songs, and no, nobody really knew that. Uh, um, until history bored out later on, um, what child is this is kind of one of those that was lost to time and then rediscovered. But I wanted to share with you, um, and you feel free to turn, uh, you'll, you'll need it anyway in a few moments, but page 94, um, kind of draw the attention, a lot of people, uh, there was a, a poem that was uh, known, a song that was known um, early on in that time that was uh, titled The Old Year Now Away has fled, and it sort of is an auld lang syne approach to things, and uh, one of the stanzas in there asks, um, or speaks of uh, Christ coming, and his, the spear that uh, that pierced his side, his, and his blessing and crowned with thorns, and, and so there's thought that maybe he was thinking of this when he, when uh, Mr. Dix penned these words, um, but I, I think more um, that he was probably contemplating his own thoughts. Uh, so let me do a couple of things, and I'm still I'm not really composed in my thought, and so I'm um, kind of going at this. Um, but let me share with you first what his approach on what child was this is. This, if you if you notice, he starts out asking a question: "What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping?" And he answers it: "This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard." And we know that we know that part of it. Then he says again, in a rhetorical sense, in a, in a question, he says, "What? Uh, why lies he in such a mean estate, such average? Mm -hmm. Just okay. So he came and he's laying there. Um, 
not really pomp and circumstance, if you will. This is where the where even the cattle the cattle are just eating at his side. Um, why not this? Why not a fancy uh, parade? Why not this? And he answers that. And this is what this has amazed me. Um, this is what I stumbled onto. He doesn't answer. He doesn't answer. Why lies he in such mean estate? Good Christian fear for sinners here. The silent word is pleading. He doesn't say this is this this is Christ the King. What he says is nails. Spear shall pierce him through, the cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. And, he, and again, he, he doesn't ask the question of the third verse. What he says is he approached the, the general idea is that he says, please, please recognize who this child is. Recognize what he has come to do. So bring him incense, gold and myrrh. Come rich and poor to own him. And he doesn't say this, this is Christ the King again. What he says is, raise, raise a song on high. The virgin sings her lullaby. <laughs> joy, joy, for Christ is born, the babe, the son of Mary. So I, I found it interesting that that has lost, that those um, choruses, if you will, have been sort of lost to time. They're, they're available. You can find them. You have to look for them. Uh, but they're not in most hymnals. Um, and I, I found that intriguing. But I would like to finish. Um, that, that sort of gives us an idea. I, I hope we think of that as, as, we're, as we're thinking. Um, Nails and spears shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Let me share with you the poem that, uh, one of the poems that um, William Chatterton Dix wrote. It's called The Major Throne. I believe he truly believed that this was a throne of God. Um, in, in that lowly estate. He says, like silver lamps in a distant shrine, the stars are sparkling bright. The bells of the city of God ring out for the son of Mary is born tonight. The gloom is past and the morn at last is coming with orient light. Never fell melodies half so sweet as those which are filling the skies. And never a palace shone half so fair as the manger bed where our Savior lies. No night in the year is half so dear as this, which has ended our size. Now a new power has come on earth, a match for all for the armies of hell. A child is born who shall conquer the foe and all the spirits of wickedness quell. For Mary's son is the mighty one whom the prophets of God foretell. The stars of heaven still shine as at first. They gleamed on this wonderful night. The bells of the city of God peal out and the angel's song still rings in the height, and love still turns where the Godhead burns, hid in flesh from fleshly sight. Faith sees no longer the stable floor. The pavement of sapphire is there. The clear light of heaven streams out to the world, and the angels of God are crowding the air. And heaven and earth, through the spotless birth, are at peace on this night so fair. Again, thank you, men, for sharing uh, about those songs and uh, notice how many of them have both the first coming and the second coming mentioned. Take your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 2. We're going to talk more about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Joy to the world. The Lord has come, I understand, is actually written more to celebrate the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's why it ends with, He rules the world. But of course, we use it as a Christmas song because that celebrates also 
Jesus' first coming. This idea of Advent or Jesus' coming is often being used by Christians to remind us that we are waiting. We're waiting for his second coming. He's come once, praise the Lord, but we're waiting for his second coming. Now, I don't know about you, I don't like waiting. I told you before, I hate waiting. Now, life seems to speed up the older I get. So the time it feels like I'm waiting for things anymore seems to be very short. But I do remember being a child, probably about Isaac's age, and it seemed like Christmas would never get there. It started just before Thanksgiving, right? You know, Thanksgiving is nice, but Christmas is a real holiday, at least in my mind. So, you know, you get through Thanksgiving, and then you've got another three weeks of school, and boy, those days just seem to go by so slowly. It's like somebody took the battery out of the clock, and the hands just don't move anymore. And then you get to the final day of school, you get out, you you know, you rush home, and you got another four or five sometimes days, sometimes a week to wait. And those would just crawl by. And I, I remember when I was younger, we'd go down to Southern California where my grandparents were for Christmas, and I didn't want to go to sleep. I wanted to stay up. And of course, my parents said, come on, the sooner you go to sleep, the sooner you wake up and it'll be Christmas morning. Boy, waiting was so hard. We're still waiting for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Here in Titus chapter 2, verses uh, 11, we're going to specifically look at verses 13 and 14, but for the context, see Titus 2, 11 with me. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. So yes, we're waiting for Christmas. It's just a few days away. I know, kids, it's going to seem like forever. It's going to be here sooner than you know it. We don't know when Christ will return. It could still be in 2022. We might not meet for New Year's Eve service because Jesus will come back. I don't know. It may be in 2023, maybe in 2024. I, I don't know when he's coming back. We're still waiting for that. They were waiting in Jesus' time for him to come the first time, for the Messiah to come the first time. I'm, I've been reflecting on this, preparing the, the message here for the weekend. Uh, there were people who knew that Jesus, the Messiah, excuse me, there were people who knew the Messiah was coming. There was Mary who had been told by the angel, and Joseph had a dream. Jesus, uh, excuse me, God told um, Joseph that they would name the child Jesus. Uh, Simeon and Anna, they were waiting in the temple. Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth knew that the Messiah was coming. The, the wise men, they, they were smart enough to know that the Messiah was coming. But there was a lot of people not paying attention at all for the Messiah. And I think the same is true today. There are those who, because we walk with God and we love him and we study his word, we see that as things grow worse and worse, the answer is for God to intervene. Again, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove that's the day we're waiting for right now. Now, so here's what I want you to notice in the passage here. Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. As you're waiting, number one, I want you to stay hopeful, looking for that blessed hope. There's hope for the future. You'd be surprised, or maybe not. Maybe you talk with other people. I, I 
I'm hearing more and more of our unsaved neighbors, coworkers, etc., talking about how things are so bad and there's no hope. And outside of Christ, there may seem like no hope. If you're one of these climate change extremists, boy, you're really, really worried right now. If you're one of these people, you're looking at rising crime rates in the United States. That's worrisome. And how are we going to get that under control? If you're worried about unfettered immigration, and I, I'm not against immigration and immigrants, but just letting people stream over the border, how are we going to get that under control? How are we going to get our national debt under control? If you were to look at those things and not have this hope, boy, I can see despair. I can see it looks very black. But that's not where our hope is. We know that even if we have to go through a time of persecution and tribulation, God's going to walk right by our side. And that someday we'll have that chance to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And it may be before we pass from this earth. So we're looking for a blessed hope. Stay hopeful. Second thing I want you to say, see here is to stay pure. He says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people. That word peculiar doesn't mean strange, like oddball, or I don't know why those people do that. Peculiar here is, like we might say someone has peculiar handwriting, that is, it, it is a sign of who they are. Your signature is a sign of who you are. Now someone else can try to fake that signature, uh, forge your signature, but your signature is peculiar to you. It's a mark of who you are. As Christians, the mark of who we are ought to be our purity. That we separate from those things that are evil and that are wicked, and we stay pure. Now, if that was the message tonight, boy, I'd be scratching my head and say, boy, that's hard, Pastor. I'm not really sure how I do that. But notice verses 11 and 12. The grace of God. What does it do? It teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and live soberly righteously and godly in this present world, not in some fantasy land or not into eternity. No, right now today, God's grace is available to us so that we can live lives that are pure, so we can live like God's peculiar people, so we can live like we're redeemed. What we lack, I think, when it comes to staying pure, we lack a vision for the future. We get caught up in the daily we get caught up in what's right in front of us. We can be like Esau, who is willing to give up his birthright for a bowl of soup. Because that's what was right in front of him. The birthright was some point in the future, and maybe he wouldn't even make it there. We need to stay focused as Christians and realize that we are not just investing for today or tomorrow, or even for retirement. We are investing for eternity. Yeah. And the rewards that we're going to get for staying pure and ministering to people and loving people... We may not see those this side of eternity. But we're going to get to heaven and we're going to be so glad that we didn't spend our lives on, on frivolous things. That we didn't worry about accumulating stuff or becoming famous or becoming a social influencer. We need a vision for the future. We need motivation. And I find the motivation mentioned here is that Jesus Christ died for me. Not only to save me from hell, that's true, and, 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 and praise the Lord for that. But he died to save me from that bondage of sin, from the power of sin that kept me from doing what I knew knew I ought to do, but that I was incapable, incapable of doing without his grace. 
The motivation to keep myself pure is that Jesus Christ thought it was important enough to die for it, to <coughs> redeem us and to purify into himself a peculiar people. And sometimes we lack commitment. Frankly, it's hard to live the Christian life, and it's going to get harder. There's going to be increasing pressure to act like everybody else and to be like everybody else and to prioritize what everyone else prioritizes. And to resist that, we need to be committed that's what discipleship is, to be committed to Jesus Christ. We need to decide that he is worth whatever sacrifices asked of us, whatever we're asked to give up, whatever we're asked to do, whatever we're asked to do that might seem oddball to the people around us. We're going to be committed to this Savior who died and gave his life for us. So as this evening of Advent comes to an end, I want to remind you, not only has Jesus come once, he's also coming a second time. And are you ready for that second coming? First of all, are you ready because your sins are forgiven? You know you have eternal life. You know you're a child of God. You know you're saved. So you're ready. You're, you're looking for that blessed hope. It's not a blessed hope, by the way, to be outside the family of God when Jesus returns. That's not the blessed hope. The blessed hope is I'm a child of God. So when Jesus comes back, he said this in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. That's the blessed hope. We have to be a, a child of God. <clears throat> Secondly, are you ready in that sense that you are working to stay pure? You're working to stay focused on ministering to others so that when Jesus comes back, you're excited to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For 2 Corinthians 5 talks about Christians standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Not to be judged based on whether we're sinners or righteous. We're already righteous in Jesus Christ. But to receive rewards for the things that we've done. 1 Corinthians 3 describes it as putting our life's work into the fire. And if it's made up of wood, hay, and stubble, it's going to burn up. There's not going to be anything left. But if it's made of gold and precious gems, then that's going to survive. So are you ready for Jesus coming because you know you're a child of God? Number two, are you ready for Jesus coming because you're investing in the future? You're investing in things that are really going to matter. Father, thank you for gathering this group here tonight. Thank you for Warren and Caleb and Scotty sharing with us about these hymns and being reminded that because you've come once and you kept your promise, you will come a second time. And may each child, each adult, each man and woman be ready for that second coming, not only because we're your child, but also because we are investing in eternity. We look forward to that time. We'll stand before you and cast our crowns. The crowns that you've given us as rewards for our service, we'll cast those crowns back at your feet. We ask that as we go into this, this final few days before Christmas, we not be distracted but we'd be focused on the Savior, that we'd share, share Jesus Christ with others, that we come into contact with as we're shopping, as we gather with family, as we meet with friends. Perhaps some folks still have a, a work engagement to go to, a dinner or, or some other celebration at work. Give them wisdom to stand for righteousness and tell others that Jesus is the reason that we celebrate at Christmas time. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like to sing number 98, which is Infant Holy, Infant Lowly. Caleb's going to come and lead us. Number 98.
And then before we go, I have a benediction for you from the book of Jude. Caleb, would you come lead us in infant holy, infant lowly, which is number 98.